0: This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack podcast. Do you know what the number one track on the ARIA charts is right now? It's not Australian. Neither is number two or three or four. You actually don't see an Australian until number 28 on the top 50 singles. It's Vance Joy. Why is Aussie music not making the charts? We're going to speak to someone later who's been crunching the numbers and we're asking, do these music charts actually mean anything anymore? And I want to hear what you think. Do you pay attention? Are you worried that we're not seeing as much Australian local music make it into those big spots? First, though, the fallout from that brutal RoboDebt Royal Commission
1: report. Pack. We fought for our sons and this is for them and this is for everyone else that has suffered. On Triple J.
0: We gave you the breaking update on the RoboDebt Royal Commission report on Friday, but even a few days on, it's still full-on, illegal, unfair, cruel. These are some of the words the Royal Commission used to describe the scheme that chased so many of you for debts that you didn't owe. And the devastation that caused can never fully be appreciated. This Royal Commission's calling for the public service to be overhauled, for more transparency from politicians, for better treatment for welfare recipients. But is it gonna happen? What do you think? If you were the victim of robo-debt, what did you make of these findings? You can call in 1300 055536. You can message in as well, 043975755. In a bit, we're gonna speak with Government Minister Bill Shorten. But first, Lala Madora has been speaking with some of those hit hardest by robodebt, And just a warning, this story does contain references to self-harm and suicide. So tune out if you need to.
2: I think a lot of people on welfare, you fight and you fight
3: and you fight. And I was fighting to clear my name. I first spoke to Sarah, which is not her real name, in 2019. Two years earlier, she'd received a robo-debt for $7,000. I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't eating. I lost three, three kilograms in less than a week. Sarah had been the victim of a crime and lived with mental health concerns well before she got her robo-debt notice. Centrelink knew that. After receiving the debt notice, Sarah decided to end her life. The method I used
2: caused incredible physical damage to me. Um, I haven't acquired brain injury. And that's why I don't have the luxury of being able to forget this scheme and the damage that this scheme has done to me.
3: She was in hospital recovering for four months and her then-partner told Centrelink to put a hold on her debt and not to call her. Even that didn't work. I started getting calls from
2: the debt collection agencies and I was like in a wheelchair recovering from my attempt.
3: The six years since have been a slog.
2: I saw footage of myself when I'd just gotten out of the wheelchair and I was learning how to walk again. And I I looked back and thought, far out, I've come a long way. And if only people knew the strength that I have and what I've overcome of no fault of my own, you know, maybe they would look at me differently. I think they would.
3: The Royal Commission might be a full stop or a form of closure for a lot of people, but not for Sarah.
2: I kind of feel like my recovery will be for the rest of
3: my life. Sarah's just so thankful that she's still here to share her story with us.
2: My mum still gets to hug me. There's many mums out there and they don't get to hug their child anymore.
1: Jared was my only son. Yeah, he was my joy, he was my purpose. So for me, it's about trying to, you know, rebuild my life and find where
3: I fit in the world. In May 2019, just weeks out from his 23rd birthday, Jared Madgewick took his own life. Hours earlier, he'd received a debt notice for $2,000. Even a small debt can push someone who's already feeling a financial stress over the edge. In the lead up to his death, Jared had been out of work and was even homeless for a period of time.
1: So Jared was starting to feel like he was a bit of a burden on me.
3: Kath has spent years trying to get answers on Jared's death. She shared her struggles at the Royal Commission into robo-debt earlier this year, a process she said made her feel heard and validated. She's really happy with Commissioner Catherine Holmes' findings. The report was much more than I anticipated. I think there will... I'm hoping that there
1: will be some real accountability, Um, but I, I do believe that the Commissioner has shown
3: that. Commissioner Holmes made 57 recommendations. So here's a bit of a recap on the biggest ones. She recommended a full-on review of Services Australia to make sure it's up to scratch and better training for public servants generally. This is a big one for Sarah, who feels like the system was dehumanising. To them we were numbers, we're not a number, we're humans. Commissioner Holmes recommended that legal advice be put in writing so public servants and politicians can't hide behind unrecorded conversations. She recommended cabinet documents should only be secret if there's a genuine reason. Then there's the big one, punishment for people involved in the scheme.
1: You know, Commissioner Catherine Holmes, I trust in her judgment. I've, I trust that she sent the people
3: that should be sent. Commissioner Holmes has referred an unknown number of people to law enforcement and anti-corruption bodies. In some cases, she's recommended criminal prosecutions. But we don't know who's been referred for prosecution because that chapter is closed to the public. One of the most contentious parts of the Royal Commission report is what was missing from it. Commissioner Holmes said there was no proper way of offering compensation to victims. But well, I don't know how compensation
2: can't be offered. Like, this was this was the government did this
3: to its people, to its vulnerable members. Kath says it wouldn't change much for her.
1: I'd give anything. I'd give my house. I'd live on a riverbank if I could have my son back.
3: She thinks Commissioner Holmes's suggestion to use the money to raise the rate of welfare payments instead is a good one.
1: I'd be happy not to receive compensation for other people to
3: have their, you know, a decent standard of living. Ultimately, both Sarah and Kath welcome the Royal Commission report even though it doesn't change their circumstances. Cass keeps thinking about how Jared might still be alive if changes had been made when red flags were first raised on the RoboDebt scheme all those years ago. And if all of these things were applied back, then I think we'd be in a different situation. And Sarah keeps thinking about the shame she carried around for years, thinking she'd done something wrong by getting a debt notice in the first place.
2: I was never the bad guy. We were never the bad guy. They,
3: they were the bad guy.
0: Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora speaking with some of the victims of robo-debt there, asking them what they think of this Royal Commission report. Remember, if that has raised anything for you, Lifeline is always there. You can get them on 13 11 14. We're hearing from you on the text line too. Someone says, Why is nothing done before these things happen? It's always after the fact. I'm sure a lot of terrible things have happened to people as a result of robo-debt that should have been sorted out well before. Another person, I got a $10,000 debt and received $26 back, disgraceful. Someone else says, joins the class action. I owed $18,000 but just got paid $240 as my settlement. A lot of people talking about the money they received as part of that class action Important to note that that wasn't compensation for pain and suffering, uh, you know, endured by robo-debt. That was related to the interest that people owed. But in terms of compensation itself, that was, you know, one of the things that was mentioned in the Royal Commission report. So let's ask someone about that from the government, because what happens now? The government's read the report. They've made it public. Where do we go from here? Well, Bill Shorten is the Government Services Minister. He's with us now. G'day, Minister. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thank you very much for inviting me. You, the Prime Minister, others keep saying robo-debt will never happen again. I guess my question is, how are you going to make sure of that and, more importantly, how are you going to convince Australians this will never happen again?
4: Well, we convince Australians by our actions, not our words. Although and one of our actions was to, for myself, for example, was to help organise the class action. So I've been on this for a long time. And then... When I proposed a royal commission, the then opposition leader, now Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, was completely locked on to doing it and we did it. So we've exposed it and going forward, we have to make sure that our public servants feel they can give free and frank and honest advice. We also need to change the culture of the debate about people using our social services system. They're not second class, they're citizens. They're people uh, who are exercising a human right. We've signed up to United Nations covenants, which recognise that the provision of social security is a human right. So, just I don't think if someone needs to get, you know, unemployment assistance or a pension or any other form of allowance, if they're eligible, then that's that, and we don't treat them as guilty till proven innocent. Well, I mean, that was one
0: of the big recommendations from this Royal Commission, that welfare recipients need to be treated better. You know, in the past, the Commissioner said they've been treated cruelly, even though they were the victims, they were made to feel like criminals and doll cheats. There's a lot of criticism on individual politicians at the moment, which I guess we can expect. But if we can focus on the public service for a bit, because, you know, rightly or wrongly, a lot of people don't have uh, a lot of faith in politicians, but they do expect the public service to be doing the right thing. How has it been allowed to get to this point? Because there are examples of public servants just going along with plans, even though they knew it wasn't right. Like you
4: say, they should be providing fearless advice. Why haven't they been? It is politics. The coalition doesn't trust the public service. And so they've tried to reshape the senior echelons in their own shape, in their own dimension. So, They've contracted out positions. There's an over-reliance on external consultants. We've got to recreate a culture in the public service. It's like all organisations, dare I say it, even the ABC. We've got to encourage that bad news gets fed up the food chain as well as good news. It's easy in life to get promoted if you tell the people above you nice things. It takes a different dimension of relationship to tell the people above you the things that they mightn't want to hear but are important to hear. So I think there's a big challenge in the public service to just reset the proposition that if you want to tell higher-ups that this isn't working well, that that shouldn't be a block to your future promotion, for example.
0: Do you think then that more senior public servants need to go? Like if we're serious about changing the culture, surely the fish rots from the head?
4: I'm careful of tarring everyone with the same brush. I've met some excellent senior public servants who are dedicated, but... I also think that if senior public servants don't understand their obligations to the people, well, then they've got to question why they're there. Minister,
0: do you think it's fair that people's names are being kept secret in this sealed chapter? Like, it's obviously for legal reasons. We know why this Mm. is happening. But there are people out there who maybe feel like they do want to know. Like, is there a risk that those responsible might escape public scrutiny forever because those names aren't public?
4: I think that's a legitimate anxiety I had mixed emotions when I realised that the Royal Commissioner... She did also put in a letter that for... So as not to prejudice any further prosecutions or investigations by civil or criminal agencies, she didn't want to name people and she had a sealed section. That's unusual. It's not unprecedented. I understand, though, the desire for accountability and the scepticism of some who say, well, if we never know who these people are, then how do we know anything ever happened? So I don't think the names can be suppressed indefinitely. I think if there's an argument about making sure we don't get in the way of proper investigation by releasing, I'm not going to second guess the um, Commissioner Holmes on that, but I don't see a world, frankly, where it can be suppressed indefinitely because it's a dilution of the rest of the work of the Commission. Can you guarantee
0: to robo-debt victims that people will be punished for what's happened?
4: I'm not the judge. I can't be the court system and I can't be the anti-corruption commission, they're independent. So I can't make that 100%. So I can guarantee that just like I helped organise the class action, just like I helped campaign for a Royal Commission, I want to do everything in my power to make sure that there's accountability because anything less than that... I think, fall short of what we should be pushing for.
0: One of the Royal Commission's recommendations is to end the government's blanket approach to the confidentiality of Cabinet documents because it's too easy for politicians to hide behind. Documents should only be kept secret if it's justified and in the public interest. Will your government implement this recommendation? Well,
4: by the nature of your question, uh, you realise that's a whole-of-government decision and I'm one minister, so I can't give you that answer. That'll be a discussion more broadly within the government. Would you support it though? Would you support? I think there is a role for some cabinet and confidence. There's a reason why we have uh, the ability to talk about matters without it being sort of 724 virtual reality Truman show But we're taking the whole of the Royal Commission seriously in the recommendations. There's 57 recommendations. You mentioned one of them.
0: But do you admit that perhaps, as the Commissioner said, that politicians are able to
4: hide behind this and that the system does need to change? Certainly the evidence that she covered showed that the previous government was making bad decisions and hiding bad decisions. I don't accept that that's how all politicians operate at all times, though.
0: You're listening to I'm Dave Marchese, I'm speaking with Government Services Minister Bill Shorten about the robo Royal Commission and where we go to from here, what the government's going to do. Minister, does Scott Morrison need
4: to leave Parliament? I'm not sure that me saying he should go is going to change anything because it's clear what I think about him. But when you actually read what is said in the Royal Commission report, some of what was said about half a dozen of the coalition ministers is stuff which no self-respecting politician would find anything other than humiliating and embarrassing. I'm not sure what he thinks he's achieving by hanging around, but that'll ultimately be up to him. What about compensation? The Royal Commissioner addressed the question of compensation in her report. What she said, Dave, was that she thought that a general scheme of compensation would be more administratively expensive to run than the actual money which would be paid. She did drop a couple of hints about potential causes of action in the future, which no doubt the lawyers will pour over.
0: Is there any indication that the government's going to pursue some kind of further
4: compensation down the road? Well, to repeat what I said, the commissioner hasn't recommended that. But will you as a government pursue that? We've got to see what the legal cause of action is. In other words, I can't just say I'm going to hand out money to people. You've got to have some legal basis for it. The Commission's put out some propositions, but we'll have to see where that goes. Bill Shorten,
0: you're also the Minister for the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and you've said you support ethical automation for the NDIS. Mm. Shouldn't we, though, be stopping these automated processes altogether? Like, it feels like the public has lost
4: trust in that. I get that. But we're not going to go back to banning the internet. We're not going to get back to getting rid of smartphones. But do we need more transparency of how, how uh, The issue with the NDIS is that I think the agency's been conclusively underfunded for a long time. So we want to improve the capability of the agency. We want to make, improve the empathy and humanity of the agency. We're bringing jobs in-house. I don't accept the challenges of the NDIS are the same set of challenges as RoboDebt, where there was a clear over-reliance on a computer algorithm, which then reversed the onus on individual people who were wrongfully... Uh, having debts raised against them. But I guess Australia doesn't have
0: laws requiring government public service algorithms to be made open and accessible to the public. My question is, should there be laws to guarantee
4: that? I think we need to have an overdue discussion about the ethics of artificial intelligence. Where that leads us, I've got an open mind. I've certainly informally discussed the role of open source codes within parts of government programs that I'm responsible for. I think the more that consumers can see programs, that allows us to identify problems earlier. It lets the people we work with and the citizens co-produce to deliver a better system. But I, I don't think I can simply just sit here and assert there's a set law which is going to be the answer. But I think you're onto something as a general discussion about keeping up with the technology so that consumers feel they have control over their own data. Well, look,
0: there's a huge amount of information to get across from this Royal Commission report. It's something that a lot of hack listeners have been waiting a long time for. Government Services Minister Bill Shorten, thank you very much for coming on Hack.
4: Thanks, Dave. And to all those people who are affected by the scheme, I don't pretend that we have all the answers, but the Royal Commission is vindication for people who are unlawfully treated by our predecessors. And I think it also, hopefully, Jolts, public service, and governments of all persuasions just make sure that the basic human rights of people are at the forefront of decision making.
3: Hack on Triple J.
4: Yeah, and a lot of
0: messages coming through on Hack's text line. Somebody says, Robo debt will disappear, but return with a new name and algorithm in the future. Another person says, I was a victim of Robo debt a few years ago. I just lost my job and was going through unfair dismissal. I couldn't find another job, and all of a sudden, I had a four grand debt. One afternoon, I got a terrible phone call from a debt collector at Services Australia who was nasty and abrupt to me. I just cried and cried and I couldn't see a way out. I've only just managed to come out of that. Somebody else, the culture of those working in Centrelink has to be improved. They mostly treat uh, recipients or would-be recipients like thieves. That's someone's opinion there. Another person, if the public service was private, it'd be chopped in half and someone else. They said I owed $10,000. I had to go back and get bank records for over 10 years to prove that I didn't. I ended up wiping about $6,000 of the debt, but I wasn't able to get all of the bank statements because of how far back it went. So they still charged me the extra $4,000. We've just heard from someone uh, who works at Centrelink. They say I started working at Centrelink earlier this year. I will say that we as an agency are doing everything we can to make sure those who are affected by robo-debt are being dealt with, with utmost sincerity and with care. Look, there are a lot of messages coming through on that one. We'll obviously keep you across all the developments that come out of these Royal Commission recommendations. Now let's switch it up a bit. It's time to talk about
1: music.
5: Hack. We need to adjust the rules of how we analyse charts because at the moment it's a very old set of rules for a very new way of listening.
1: On Triple Jack...
0: Hey, when was the last time you looked at the Aussie music charts? the ones that Aria publishes? Because back in the day not only musicians but fans would really be obsessed with what was most popular in Australia at that moment. If you're curious, here's a bit of a taste of what's up the top right now You, think
4: I was smart, but was a, night. you a fast car.
0: notice anything weird there no australian music and it's not a one-off it's actually a pretty dramatic trend that's hit the music charts in recent years when we look at albums apparently every week this year there've been more albums by taylor swift in the australian top 50 than albums by all australian artists combined that is wild what is going on Well, let's ask someone who's been looking into this. Casey Briggs is an ABC data journalist. He's been crunching the numbers. And he's with me now. G'day, Casey. Thanks for coming on, Hack. G'day, Dave. Good to have Thanks for having me. How many Australians are actually making it onto the ARIA charts at the moment?
5: Well, we'll look at the... Just look at this week's chart as an example. Mm. Uh, you look at the singles chart. Well, an ostrich could count the Aussies on one foot. <laughs> <laughs> one of them you mentioned at the top of the song, at the top of the show, Vance Joy with Riptide. So that is a 10-year-old song coming in at number 28. And there is one other Aussie single. Any guesses? Mm. Oh, it has to be Kylie. It's Kylie. Yeah. <laughs> so the Australian singles chart is not looking very padum-padum for locals <laughs> at all at the moment. The albums chart the same, two Australian albums. And if I can just read to you from uh, this week's ARIA albums chart, number one, Midnight's by Taylor Swift. Number two, Lover by Taylor Swift. Number three, 1989 by Taylor Swift. Number four, Reputation by Taylor Swift. Number five, Folklore by Taylor Swift. I'm halfway through the Taylor wow, Swift entrance on Wow,
0: I don't the chart. believe. That well, I do believe that actually. After seeing what happened a few weeks ago when tickets went on sale, how has this changed over the years,
5: Casey? Like, what what has the trend been like? So, we we, we went back for this story, we crunched the numbers right back to 1988. 2023 is the worst year for Australian music on the ARIA charts in the entire existence of the ARIA charts. Uh, it's been not great for a few years this year, it is. Has really plunged to new depths, and there are, I think, two main reasons for this. One, the charts aren't actually measuring the same thing they used to, even sort of six, seven, eight years ago. Well, I wanted to ask how what they measure, like how this is calculated. Yeah, so there are there are two elements now. Charts have always measured sales, you know, back in the day that was largely CD sales or cassette sales or vinyl sales. That is still happening; uh, they get counted on the ARIA charts each week. Thousands of retailers around the country submit their data to ARIA. But the second element, the new element, is all of the digital streaming that's happening on the biggest platforms like Apple Music and Spotify and a few others as well. They are also getting counted. Every stream of every song by an Australian is going to ARIA. They're converting each stream to an equivalent number of sales using uh, what they've estimated to be the, the, the value of a single stream and they're counting calculating and including that alongside the sales so the charts where they used to be a measure of sales they're now this sort of slightly peculiar blend of uh sales and consumption music consumption how much people are listening to each and every week and that is what is bringing that latter thing is what is bringing in the global megastars constantly the back catalogue you know people are not going out and buying riptide on cd 10 years after it's been released. They're listening to it on the streaming platforms. People are not buying The Killers, Mr Brightside on vinyl, 20 years after it was released. They're streaming it. It's on party playlists. That's what's bringing it uh, to the singles chart most weeks still in this year, 2023. Um, And so you've got this blend. When Aussies do get to the top of the charts, and there have been a handful of those cases this year, it tends to be because of the sales and the physical sales. They've had a really successful pre-order campaign. They've had, uh, you know, fans really rush to buy their album in launch week and that can propel them to number one. Often the following week, they're straight back out.
0: Oh, right. Okay. So there's, uh,
5: if, if they do manage to make it, it's not for very long. It's a little bit of a dirty secret, I think, because oh. it, these are this is entirely within the rules. This is entirely, you know, how the charts have always worked but it is in some ways almost a little bit manufactured because you're comparing sales versus streaming. You're comparing all of those pre-orders in one week. Um, It's a bit hard to know exactly what a number one means these days. Yeah, for sure.
0: You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with the ABC's Casey Briggs about the numbers he's crunched around, uh, you know, Aussie artists and music charts and why we're not seeing more Australian musicians making those charts. you have got some messages coming through. Someone says, let's face it, Australian music ain't what it used to be. Yes, some is good, there is talent, but when compared to the rest of the world our talent has really gone down in the last few years. I don't know, Hayley, I don't know whether a lot of Australian musicians and fans would back you on that. Um, some might. Another person says, pop charts are a boomer construct based on ownership and competition that can't adapt to the leasing model of streaming. That was from Dave. Another person says, Kylie and Vance Joy, what's the chart? Music to knit to. (laughs) <laughs> Look, a lot of thoughts coming through on the text line r- right now. I want to ask you, Casey. You know, you've been speaking to everyone as part of this story. I saw you spoke to Zan rose She gave her take on w- what she thinks of the charts and and how they're reflected these days. You also spoke with Aria themselves. What
5: did they have to say? Yeah, just, just before I get to Aria, just on on your texters saying, you know, some of them common things. The charts don't really, you know, what's the cultural capital of the charts these days uh, when you and I were kids, uh, you would go to, well, a shop like Sanity or something yeah. and they would have the top 40 out the front and you'd have posters with the ARIA. You'd, you'd use it as a guide to actually find out what was new. It's not really the case anymore. And, and, and that's one of the criticisms of the charts, that it's much more an industry marker. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's something that you can put on, you know, press releases uh, that, that might help you in overseas markets if you're trying to get on festival lineups and things like that. But... Um, you know, the charts themselves aren't relevant. But what does ARIA have to say about this? Well, they say it's a crisis. They say uh, that that, that specifically this is a crisis of music consumption because the data is not just showing Australians not in the charts, it's also showing that Australians are listening to less Australian music. And that is potentially a a slippery slope, a nasty direction to be going to if you're a, a local artist. So they're saying they don't have a lot of time to turn... Things around, especially when you're seeing things, uh, you know, at, at, at a particularly low level right now.
0: Well, let's have a little listen to Annabelle Hurd, who's the CEO at ARIA. I
2: actually think that now we're more accurately reflecting what music consumption is happening because, you know, when you went down and bought a new CD at Sanity, you know, the charts didn't necessarily reflect all of the music you were listening to in a week. What we're trying to do through the ARIA charts is give an accurate picture of listening. Um, It is just a measurement of what's happening. You know, the charts can't fix this problem. They are just measuring what is happening.
0: Interesting, Casey. You also spoke with some
5: Australian artists. What did they have to say? Yeah, I spoke with Tim Nelson from Cub Sport. So Cub Sport, the Brisbane band, one of only a handful of acts to have had a number one album this year. They were helped by a pre-order. Like campaign. Let's be real here. Uh, but they're now on tour in the US. They've done, they're doing this massive tour around uh, the globe at the moment. Uh, spoke to Tim Nelson uh, in Roswell in between two stops on the tour. <laughs> Very spooky chat. Uh, and and he talked a bit about how you know what the charts mean to him as an artist. I feel like it isn't as much of a thing where people like, go for like discovery and that sort of thing. But I think for us and having released five albums now it's kind of just like a a cool market to be able to recognise the growth that
2: we've
0: seen throughout that time. There's Tim Nelson from Cub Sport there it's fascinating right like and yeah I've seen a a few journalists delve into this in the last few months people want to know what's going on it's great that you've been able to really crunch the numbers though and get an idea
5: of this trend and just how dramatic it is. Did you contact Spotify did
0: they have anything to say?
5: Yeah because Spotify, you know, often get criticised for, you know, making it much more easy to discover overseas acts than local acts. The algorithm tips you into North America all the time. Um Spotify say, and I think they are correct, that they are the single biggest contributor to the Australian music industry uh, just by virtue of the fact that everyone's listening to music on Spotify. They they say they paid out a quarter of a billion dollars to Australian artists last year. They've got playlists that are locally curated. Uh, they've got um, artist uh, discovery programs and development programs. I guess the criticism that some would have are raising the question of whether that's enough. Yeah, right. Well, look, we appreciate you coming in and
0: having a chat with us, Casey. Briggs, ABC data journalist. Thanks very much for your time. It's a pleasure. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.